at the beginning of each summer when I sit down to plan my sermon topics for the coming year, I try to become increasingly aware of areas that I might be neglecting. Now, some I'm conscious of, and, you know, there's 10,000 things that one might talk about here on a Sunday morning that might help us live better in our globalized, pluralistic, postmodern world. So some things I'm conscious of and just not able to get to. Other things I realize as I sit down and look forward and look back, I realize that, you know, I really do need to change that. For instance, at the end of my second year as your minister, I realized I had not yet preached about Islam. And if we're serious about this goal of encouraging spiritual growth by drawing wisdom from all the world's religions, balanced with the insights of modern science, it's probably a mistake to not talk about the world's second largest religion. And since 2014, I have preached about Islam at least annually. And I look forward to sharing future sermons with you on topics such as progressive Islam, uh, 21st century interpretations of the Quran, the life and teachings of the prophet Muhammad, and the life of Rumi, the uh, best-selling poet who is also a Muslim mystic. As Nancy shared earlier, there are approximately 1.5 billion Muslims in the world, making it the world's second largest religion. Christianity is the first largest with 2.1 billion adherents, and the Hindu tradition comes in third with 900 million followers. I should add that projections estimate that Islam is on track to become the world's largest religion by 2070. So there are many reasons to increase our familiarity with the Islamic tradition from creating, uh, correcting misinformation that can uh, exacerbate Islamophobia to being more equipped to advocate for a more open, tolerant, and progressive Islam in the future. And our motivation should be not only to dismantle prejudice, which by all means is a worthy goal by itself, but also to end the pretty irrational wasting of our resources um, toward Islam that we're currently doing. Uh, For instance, by the end of 2016, Muslim terrorists were responsible for 123 of the almost 250,000 murders in the United States since 9-11. That's far less than 1% for those doing the math in their heads. Yet counterterrorism remains the number one priority of the FBI, which spends several billion dollars annually to prevent and prosecute Muslim terrorists. Moreover, when our government crosses over into the routine harassment of innocent Muslim citizens, we we increase the likelihood of sowing the seeds of resentment and alienation that can create the soil in which future terrorism is most likely to flourish. Here at the beginning, it may also be helpful to share a few more um, data points that stand out from some important new survey results released just in the last few weeks about America's changing religious identity. The banner headline is that white Christians, once the dominant religious group in the United States, already now account for less than half of all adults living in this country. Today, fewer than half of all states are majority white Christian. Whereas as recently as 2007, 39 states were majority white Christian. There's also some fascinating data points about Unitarian Universalism from that survey that I will have to share at a future point. 
Since our focus today is on Islam, there are two trends about Muslims in America that may particularly be worth highlighting. The first is that non-Christian religious groups in particular are growing in this country, but they still currently represent less than one in ten Americans combined. Jewish Americans constitute approximately 2% of the U.S. public. Muslims, Buddhists, and Hindus each about 1% of the U.S. public. All other non-Christian religions constitute an additional 1%. The second data point is that America's youngest religious groups are all non-Christian. Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists are all far younger than white Christian groups. At least one-third of Muslims, one-third of Hindus, and one-third of Buddhists are all under the age of 30 in this country. Roughly one-third of the religiously unaffiliated Americans are also under 30. In contrast, white Christian groups are aging. I'm not trying to say there's anything wrong with aging. I turned 40 this year. I'm told that's getting old. Uh, so the real traumatic thing for me was 35. We can talk about that uh, at another point. That was when it was really clear I was no longer a young adult, right? You're fully an adult at that point. Uh, but so in, in contrast to white Christian groups, slightly more than one in 10 white Catholics, white evangelical Protestants, and white mainline Protestants are under 30, just one in 10 of those groups. Um, also, approximately six in 10 white evangelical Protestants, white Catholics, and white mainline Protestants are at least 50 years old, whereas the median age of Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, religiously unaffiliated Americans, and Hispanic Protestants, that median age is all below 40. That's a lot of numbers to keep track of, so let me repeat just the highlights about Islam. Muslims are approximately 1% of the U.S. population, but of that, one, uh, of that 1%, one-third are under the age of 30 and growing rapidly. So I don't want to overwhelm you with data, but here are just two more helpful points that may be worth considering just to give us a, a data point to consider about the shift that's happening in recent decades regarding Islam in America. In 1967, there were fewer than 250,000 self-identifying Muslims in the United States. Today, there are about 3.35 million. So 250,000 in 1967 to 3.35 million. The growth of the Muslim community is largely um, due to immigration, in particular the 1965 Immigration and Naturalization Act signed by President Lyndon Johnson. He signed it very intentionally in the shadow of the Statue of Liberty because that act intentionally tried to begin reforming our incredibly racist system of immigration that largely until 1965 prohibited immigrants from countries perceived as non-white. Millions of non-white people have immigrated to the U.S. since then. Perhaps two million of them have been Muslim. In 1967, there were fewer than 200 mosques in this country. Today, there are more than 2,000. 267 to two, that more than 2,000 today. One final point. Today, the sectarian profile of Muslims in America roughly mirrors the rest of the Muslim world. The majority of Muslim Americans are Sunni. 16% identify as Shia, 14% say, I'm just a Muslim, and 4% are members of smaller communities such as the Nation of Islam. All right, no more data this morning, I promise. But my larger point is that the stories we tell matter. And some of this data begins to point us beyond how we might move beyond tired debates about Islam and the West, or Islam and America, as if those were two totally different, unintersecting things. 
And those sorts of talks have often, way of talking, have often always been lacking in historical context. As Amir Hussein, a theology professor at Loyola Marymount University, details in her important book, Muslims and the Making of America, it's much more accurate historically and arguably much more helpful and hopeful to tell a story about Islam in the West and Muslims in America. Uh, After all, there have always been Muslims in the United States since long before there was a United States in this land. An example of learning to tell that story better, uh, let me lift up just one paragraph from President Obama's 2009 speech to the Muslim world at Cairo University. That address is very much worth revisiting in full as well, but here's just a piece. He said, Islam has always been a part of America's story. He said the first nation to recognize our country, it was Morocco. In signing the Treaty of Tripoli in 1796, our second president, John Adams, wrote that the United States has in its character no enmity against the laws, religion, or tranquility of Muslims. And since our founding, American Muslims have enriched this country. They have fought in our wars, served in our government, stood for civil rights, started businesses, taught at our universities, excelled in our sports arenas, won Nobel Prizes, built some of our tallest buildings, and lit the Olympic torch. And when the first Muslim American was recently elected to Congress, it was recent in 2009, since uh, Keith Ellison, and we now have another um, uh, Muslim congressman. Uh, when, he, when Keith Ellison took the oath of office to defend our United States Constitution, he did it on the Holy Koran that one of our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, kept in his personal library. Jefferson not only knew, among the many languages that Jefferson knew, included Arabic. Allow me to unpack a few of those details more fully. Regarding that first line that America has, uh, that Islam has always been part of America's story, here's just one example. We have a biography from 1734 about Job bin Solomon, an enslaved Muslim who in 1730 was sold in Annapolis, Maryland, about 90 minutes from here by car. Part of why we know about him at all, including that he was a Muslim, is that his owner found it remarkable and worth writing about that his, this enslaved person that he had just bought could both read and write Arabic. Similarly, some of you may recall from Alex Haley's 1977 television miniseries Roots about Alex Haley tracing his own ancestry as an African-American. There's a scene in which Kuta Kinte, played by LeVar Burton, uh, shares with his mentor, played by Louis Gossett Jr., shares about being a Muslim. I should perhaps also note that Kuta Kinte was sold in Annapolis, Maryland. To widen our lens beyond these two specific examples, historians estimate that somewhere between 10 and 20 percent of the enslaved people who were brought here from West Africa were Muslim. The first Muslim immigrants to North America, other than slaves, were from the Ottoman Empire in the late 19th century. And enslaved Muslims helped build this country since before the beginning. Indeed, George Washington, the first president of our country, had two enslaved Muslims named Fatima and Little Fatima, the namesake of the youngest daughter of the Prophet Muhammad and his first wife, as well as his first follower, Khadija. So enslaved Muslims also helped build Mount Vernon. Turning the clock back further, we also have records about Estevanancio, the Moor, who was an enslaved Muslim owned by a Spanish conquistador who landed in Florida in 1528. 
Estevancio was part of a group that explored Florida and Arizona before being killed by a member of the Zuni tribe in 1539 in what is now New Mexico. So almost 80 years before the pilgrims landed here in America, a Muslim had already explored uncharted territory in the US, what became the U.S. West and died here. Turning back the clock just one more time, it is important to remember then that, that same year, 1492, that we're told Columbus sailed the ocean blue. That same year that, Spain, that they were sending Columbus off, Spain was also very prominently expelling all of the Jews and Muslims from that country who would not convert to Christianity. Hashtag Inquisition. Related, there's a fascinating part of the 1994 book, Shards of Love, by the eminent um, historian, uh, the late historian, Maria Rosa uh, Minical, who is the Sterling Professor of the Humanities at Yale University. She wrote this part about Louis de Torres. He was a converso, a Jewish person forced to convert to Christianity, who was part of Columbus's expedition as a translator. De Torres could speak Arabic and Hebrew in addition to Portuguese. And I bring all this up, and I'll very, uh, you know, gladly note here that the historical records are a little fuzzy here, but it seems that when Columbus landed in Cuba, de Torres was able to speak Arabic with some of the Tano chiefs in Cuba. This lends some potential credence, and this is the fuzzy part, to some of these legends from the 10th and 12th centuries that we have from Arabic countries about Arabic sailors having crossed the Atlantic and making pre-Columbian contacts. So Medical is writing provocatively about the speaking of Arabic in the New World just as it is being outlawed in the Old. But I don't want to get uh, distracted on that speculative point. Irrespective of that, we know definitively that 10,000 years before Columbus sailed the ocean blue, in around 8500 BCE, semi-nomadic groups of uh, hunter-gatherers began to practice agriculture in seven different places on this continent, becoming the indigenous residents of this land. So as Columbus Day approaches, or Indigenous Peoples Day, depending on how you talk to, as it approaches next month, it is important to remind ourselves periodically of what history books often fail to emphasize, that even though our nation's capital is named after Columbus, the District of Columbia, Columbus didn't discover America. He never set foot in North America, much less in the land known today as the United States. Columbus's first voyage landed him in the what is known today as the Dominican Republic in Haiti. He returned on his second voyage to discover, so to speak, that his 40 men that he had left there had all been killed by the indigenous people who didn't really want them there. On his third trip, he landed in what is now Venezuela, and on his fourth trip, he reached the Caribbean coast of Central America. But now we are definitely as far back in history as I want to go this morning. So let me give you one more historical example of Muslims in America before moving into much more contemporary times. Given all the violence that's erupted in the, the news in recent years about a censorship around images of the Prophet Muhammad, I often find that commentators fail to note that there is an image of the Prophet Muhammad holding a sword and as well as a Quran on a frieze in the United States Supreme Court. Have any of you seen that? A few, okay, so at least one. The intention of this art, which depicts many other figures, is to honor the great lawgivers of history. But given all the controversies, I sometimes think maybe it's better we don't talk about that. So, shh. <laughs> but uh, the, in contrast, perhaps the one place Muslims have not been hiding in American public life, most of all, is in the sports arena. 
Cassius Clay, one of the most famous athletes of all time, changed his name to the pretty Islamic choice of Muhammad Ali. And there's a lot to be said about his story, including how he was arrested, had his boxing title stripped, and was unable to box for three years starting in 1967 because he was a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War on the basis of Islam's teachings about not participating in unjust wars. Uh, He famously said, I have no quarrel with the Viet Cong. As far as I know, no Viet Cong has ever called me the N-word, something that can't be said for my fellow citizens. In 1971, the United States Supreme Court unanimously overturned his conviction. But in addition to Muhammad Ali, there are so many examples of prominent Muslim Americans in professional sports. To name just a few, starting with basketball, we have Ferdinand Louis Alcincor Jr. All of you know him, right? Well, in 1971, he changed his name to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Also, Hakeem Olajuwon, another prominent example. Moving to football, you have Ahmad Rashad, the wide receiver for the Vikings. You have Muhammad Wilkerson, a defensive end for the New York Jets. The Abdullah brothers, Hussein and Hamza, safeties in the NFL. Aqib Talib, a cornerback for the Denver Broncos. Uh, Shahid Khan, a Muslim owner of the Jacksonville Jaguars. Ibta Shahad uh, Muhammad, a member of the U.S. fencing team, who in 2017... Uh, at the 2016 Olympics, became the first American woman to compete wearing a hijab. It's interesting to watch dynamics play out as some of these athletes negotiate their uh, celebrity status along with their Muslim and American identities. So there's so much more to say about Islam in America, but my hope is that at least in some small part, this sermon is helping to give lie to the perception that Islam is wholly new to America, wholly foreign to America, or composed of adherents that are completely violent or un-American or a threat to our nation. Instead, many of us here at UUCF are reminded firsthand through our participation in the solidarity with our Muslim neighbors at the Islamic Society of Frederick or when we invited the members of the Islamic Society here and shared a potluck meal with them just a few years ago that the reality has always been that most American Muslims, they're our neighbors, they're our fellow citizens, they're our friends. So these debates about Islam and the West, or Islam versus America, they've all too frequently simply been exploitations for political gain. May we be part of learning to tell a better story, a more accurate story, a more hopeful story about American Muslims, about Islam in America, one that's been here since before there was an America. And in that spirit of drawing the circle wide, I invite you to rise and body your spirit. Let's sing together hymn 286, Faith of the Larger Liberty. All right, I love when we're on track to end early. So I'm going to share with you more. And and then I think we'll have just a few moments that if there's some things that have really resonated with you at the course of the service, it might be the music, it might be some of the words that have been spoken, or just this topic of Islam and, and of Muslims in the world. You know, So where is what's been said this morning? Where does that intersect with your life, the life of the world, or insights that have maybe come up to you? We'll have a few minutes to maybe share. 
Uh, but first I want to share with you just two quick things from the class I taught about this time last year on this concept of privilege. What is privilege in the world and how, do, how are things in our society structured in ways both implicit and explicit that lend to the default setting being male supremacy? white supremacy, uh, heteronormativity, that how do, how do these biases get set up in our world? So specifically around Islam, uh, this uh, to read you a quick uh, passage from the essay, Middle Eastern as the Other, that the ways in which ethnicity is frequently whitewashed. Uh, here's an example. The long list of Middle Eastern Americans includes individuals from virtually every aspect of American life, such as tennis player Andre Agassi, except he's a Persian-Armenian-American, Indy 500 champion Bobby Rahal, who's a Lebanese-American, NFL quarterbacks Doug Flutie and Jeff George are both Lebanese-Americans, but those are all typically just known as white. Andre Agassi is usually known as a parentheses white tennis player. Ralph Nader is a white politician, Uh, but they're both Middle Eastern in ethnicity. But as Osama bin Laden is always described, not just as a terrorist, but as an Arab terrorist. Uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini as a Middle Eastern Islamic fundamentalist. So that just inviting you to become more conscious of the ways we selectively racialize human beings. Let me give you one other example from the film, Disney film Aladdin. How many of you have seen that? You may or may not have notice, and if you go back, I think you will, how incredibly racist that film is, uh, uh, and the way it's selectively racialized. So all the chief wrongdoers in that film, the greedy bazaar merchants, the thief Kazim, the main antagonist Jafar, all possess exaggerated stereotypical features. So all of the transgressive... so, so, you know, thick Arab accents, facial hair, prominent hooked noses, whereas like Princess Jasmine, the Sultan, Aladdin, they possess few features traditionally associated with Arabs. Instead, their physiognomy is quintessentially European and they have no Middle Eastern accent. So in other words, the transgressive characters in this movie are Arabized and the wholesome characters, so to speak, are anglicized, uh, thereby heightening negative stereotypes linked to Middle Easterners and concurrently reinforcing positive associations with whiteness. And all these build up over time and affect us. On, on, they give us what's called implicit bias. Uh, one other quick example from an uh, essay by the scholar Juan Cole called The Top Ten Differences Between White Terrorists and other terrorists. I won't read all ten, but he writes that white terrorists are called gunmen. What does that even mean? Aren't all those gun odors in America gunmen? Other terrorists are called, I don't know, terrorists. White terrorists are troubled loners. Other terrorists are always suspected of being part of this global plot, even when they are clearly troubled loners. Doing a study on the danger of white terrorists at the Department of Homeland Security will get you sidelined by angry congressional representatives. Doing studies on other kinds of terrorists is a guaranteed promotion. White terrorists are never called white. Other terrorists are almost always identified by their ethnic affiliations. Nobody thinks white terrorists are typical of all white people, but other terrorists are considered paragons of their society. There is nothing you can do, apparently, about white terrorists. Gun control definitely won't help. No policy you could make, no government program could possibly have an impact on them. But hundreds of billions of dollars must be spent annually on police and the Department of Defense and on the TSA in strip searching, essentially, 60 million people a year to deal with other terrorists, therefore increasing anger and bias against them.
we have a choice in how we treat people, right? So as, we, so as you go through the rest of this day and in the, in, the, in the week to come, just be aware of that at every moment when, they, when, the, when you encounter another human being. That, will this, the way we're interacting, is that going to increase fear, division, and hatred? Or can I use this as an opportunity to choose love? to choose justice and compassion. So as you go, know that whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, or peace, or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly and with Thanksgiving.